A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello there, fellow time travelers. I love you all. It's great to have you with me as we travel through time and space together. Sometimes I think we might end up all having to live on an island together. (laughs) So we better practice getting along well. Uh, History is a fascinating mine of knowledge. Uh, It's all ready to be unearthed, looked at again, analysed, interpreted, however imperfectly. Um, So whilst we we can't tell what the future holds, we can look back to the past in an effort to learn lessons, sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong. Most of the time it's in the grey zone in between. But, but that endeavour is part of hope for help with coping with the present. And God knows we need it now. And for good or ill, imperfect as it is, that's what this series of podcasts is all about. So to, to help support them, to help support the series, uh, and also at the same time to get access to exclusive content every week, sign up to my patreon.com site. Simple, go to patreon.com, search for me by name, go through the drill, part with some cash, you can pay monthly or you can pay annually and it's cheaper if you go for the whole year all at once, but either way I'd love to see you there and you become just part of the wider family to contemplating all of this stuff. Okay, it's now time to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. The fun of the roads goes too far and a child is conceived. Known to his mother as Umlulwana, the little blazing fire, he becomes in time king of the Zulus laying the foundations for his people's greatness. Under his descendants, the kingdom flowers, and the Zulu spirit, born of his rule, bloodies the nose of the mighty British Empire. Hi Neil. Last week we travelled with you to America as the people rose up, threw off the shackles of royalty and wrote their constitution. Where are we this week? Hi, Paul. Well, in this episode, we're leaving the United States of America. We're hopping over the Atlantic and heading to southern Africa. We're to meet a powerful woman and a determined king. A king who ruthlessly trained an army of formidable warriors and built a mighty kingdom. It's 1816 and we're meeting Shaka as he is crowned king of the Zulus. Today we're in Southern Africa. We're in territory that eventually becomes known as Zululand. But at the at the beginning of this particular story, there's there's really hardly any such thing <laughs> as Zulus or Zululand. But we'll, we'll get to that. I would say as well, this is a, 
a story or part of a story that I care very much about. Really, I would never have stumbled accidentally into television at all. And, and so much of the rest of my life would have unfolded differently, but for this story. Back in 1998, 1999, I was part of setting up a project to investigate the battlefield of Isandalawana in, well, it's KwaZulu-Natal now. Uh, and a, a lot of people have heard of Isandalawana and, and also the Battle of Rourke's Drift, uh, which became the really, really famous 1960s movie with uh, Michael Caine and Stanley Baker. And like, like a lot of people of my generation, I, I saw that film when I was a little boy and was obsessed, obsessed with Zulus and, and the battle, uh, the, the, the battles unfolded on the 22nd of January 1879 and, and as I say back in 98, 99, 1998, 1999, but a kind of a, a wish fulfilment, a dream fulfilment thing happened. I was involved with setting up the first ever in, investigations, archaeological investigations of Isandalwana and uh, and it, it, it led it led to everything else. So uh, myself and a group of friends, we, we spent as much time as we could. We were able to, I was able to get time off work and go out for weeks at a time. And and we, we, we took volunteers with us and we came back and forth to, to Zululand, KwaZulu-Natal, uh, for weeks at a time over a period of three, four years. And I got to know the place and made friends out there. And, and then we set up a, a an international conference off the back of it to meet and talk with other people who'd investigated battlefields anywhere in the world. And, and then it, it drew the attention of a television company and a researcher came up to talk to us about the possibility of making a TV series about about battlefields. And that was what became Two Men in a Trench in the fullness of time. So everything about the, my the second half of my life really has its roots in Zululand. And, and, and I remain passionate about the subject to this day. It's interesting how those that little clinking in your history led to so much more. Ah, uh, it's what, what you say. It's one of those sliding doors moments, <laughs> isn't it? You know, if if I hadn't got involved with that project at that time, you know, I'd probably be sitting somewhere else now, <laughs> doing something else. It really, it was, it was uh, foundational. It was the, it was the. It was the door into the rest of my life. Uh, but it, d it did come anyway from this fascination with Zulus. It, it was following your passions, though, even from the fact that you can trace it back to childhood as well. Yeah, well, yes. It, it brought all these things together. You know, the, the fact that long before, when I was, I probably saw the film the first time when I was about 10, you know, something like that with my, you know, my dad sat me down and said, oh, you've got to watch this, son. <laughs> it's like a rite of passage for a lot of boys. <laughs> Watching Zulu with your dad—that was the movie's name—and um, yeah, that, so that was long before I then went to university and studied archaeology. And I had had my career as, a, as, a, as an archaeologist. I had moved on from that. I had retrained as a journalist, and you know, I was on a different path altogether. But because of friendships, I came back together with with archaeology and this project to go out and, and archaeologically investigate Zulus. So it, it brought together two parts of my life um, and it, you know it was it was genuine you know there was nothing fake about it it was a genuine 
obsession. I was, uh, and I was involved with other people who were as obsessed with the film Zulu as I was. And it was like it was like living the dream to go out and see the place where it happened and spend proper time there. You know, not a couple of days, but months. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's the that's why this particular moment in the in the love letter to the world matters to me the way that it does because it, it changed my life. So, we'll get to. Isandalwana eventually, but really, really this story is about the man and the woman who caused the the kingdom of the Zulus to happen, if you can believe it. So it, it all goes back to 1760, let's say, that'll be my starting point, and the birth of a woman called Nandi. Nandi is a name from the, the Bantu family of languages. There's a whole group, like a family tree of languages that sort of hang off the Bantu tree. So Nandi means the sweet one. There's something very lyrical about the Zulu language and about the and the Bantu language, and, and in, in many respects, many of its offshoots are uh, onomatopoeic. So there's there's an emphasis on on coining words that sound like the, what's being described. It just adds a, a, an, an extra layer of intrigue to the whole thing because of the sounds of the words. So so Nandi is born to a chief. Nkosi is the relevant Bantu word for a chief. Nkosi Mdingi of the Mhrongo clan. So she wasn't a Zulu, she was of the Mhrongo. But she was a princess, you know, she was the she was the daughter of of the chief of the clan. And in seventeen eighty six, right, she catches the eye, let's say of Sen Zangakona, who is the chief of a neighbouring clan, and that neighbouring clan are Zulu. And it's tiny. It's a t- it, it numbers no more, maybe than 1,500, 2,000 people at that point. Zulu is an interesting word. It comes out of that, that Bantu family of languages, and it means angel, as in from heaven as in an inhabitant of heaven, because when the people who became the Zulus, they were part of a, of a large migration, a folk movement from the northern part of Africa down into what we know as southern Africa. And when they arrived and settled in this particular landscape, they called it KwaZulu, which translates as the place where heaven is. They were so amazing. It is beautiful. It's a, it, it, everything about it, the climate, the landscape, the colours. It's And those people recognised it for the, for the paradise it was and called it KwaZulu, the place where heaven is. And therefore they were, they were Zulus. They were the inhabitants of heaven. So given the kind of warlike reputation of, of what the Zulus became, it's quite interesting to know that the, the word that they used to describe themselves was that they were angels living in heaven. So we've got Zingakona, who's the chief of this little fledgling clan, just another clan, and small and insignificant, really, though his population is in the scheme of things. He's a very haughty and proud man, and uh, he, he, well, he, he catches sight of Nandi from you know, like the girl next door, if you like, and you know, by all accounts, she was she was very attractive, and they got together. Now, in the culture. Sex outside marriage was not allowed, as is the case. It's often the case in a lot of cultures. You know, so there was a prohibition 
on going all the way. That said, there was a practice called ukuhrobonga, which is basically descriptive of uh, fooling about, <laughs> um, going a certain way, doing certain things, but, but not all the way up to uh, penetrative sex. It was also called amachleya and lela, which translates as the fun of the roads, which is descriptive of, you know, casual encounters, as long as they don't go up to penetrative sex. However, it goes without saying that what Senzancona and Nandi got up to on a particular day in 1786 led to the conception of a child. Okay, so they went they went they went a bit further than Amachaya and Lela, so they were in breach of of their etiquette. Okay, so they they go their separate ways for a few a few weeks or a few months, but then eventually Nandi starts to show she's got a bump, and her father uh, marches her into the kraal of Senzancona and says, "Listen, pal, what are you going to do about this? You've got my daughter into trouble, as it were," and Senzancona decides to take the uh, dishonourable line and he d- he basically won't accept that Nandi's pregnant. And in fact, famously, what he, what he says is that she's infected with Ishaka, Ishaka, which is a parasite that gets into the intestines, it causes intestinal disruption, and it also um, disrupts a, a woman's uh, menstrual cycle and causes swelling. So he said, "No, she's not pregnant. She's she's got Ishaka," and uh, he sends he sends Nandi away, uh, really in shame. And for Nandi, it burns, it burns. And when the child is born, it's a little boy. She calls him Shaka after this parasite, because apart from anything else, she wants to make sure that no one ever forgets what she was accused of, or the slur that was put upon her at that time. So the boy grows up to be Shaka, Shaka Zulu. She adores him. She is the most doting mother, you know, any little boy could ever want. And he was, quite frankly, he was, he did grow up as a, as a, as a mummy's boy. He was the apple of his mother's eye. And although she, she let it be known that he was Shaka, she called him Umliluana, which means something like little blazing fire. So a little blazing fire that, that is presumably going to lead to something bigger. And under her care, I mean, she f- she fights for him. She's a single mother and she fights for him and she protects him and she dotes on him and she, you know, she looks after his every need. She's also supported all the time by her three sisters, Umkabaye, Umama and Nomawa, uh, who are his aunts, his three aunts and the, the, the foursome gather around this child and see to it that he's, you know, groomed for greatness. Long story short, by 1816, okay, he's 30, there or thereabouts, uh, he's the king. He is now the king of the Zulus. Okay, we don't need to go into all the, you know, all the machinations that led to that, but he's now the, he's now the king of the, of the Zulu people. And what he does by force of will and determination and, and whatever the strength of his character is that he draws people in. He draws people in from surrounding sub-clans and they become Zulu. And, and by, by the time of his death, 12 years later, uh, the Zulu population is a quarter of a million strong. You know, so he's, he has taken it during the course of his maturity from an insignificant clan of 1,500 people to a quarter of a million and 
Shaka is something else. In the in the great pantheon of of military commanders, your Wellingtons and your Nelsons and your whatever your Churchills, Shaka is a military genius. He he understands how to fight, and he understands how to put together fighting forces against which none can stand. Up until him arriving on the scene, when forces of warriors came together, they would stand at a distance and throw spears at one another and and defend themselves with you know big uh, big shields. Shaka said, "Forget it," and he he trained his people in close combat, and he he cut the end off the of the throwing spears until they became short stabbing spears. Okay, so they weren't for throwing; they were for holding, much like a sword, with a long blade on the end. And he, he taught them to, that, to close with the enemy. He called this thing, I, I, I mentioned that the Zulu language is onomatopoeic. Well, these stabbing fighting spears were called ikwa, ikwa, which is an attempt to recreate the sound that the blade makes, the sucking sound that it makes when you pull it back out of a man's body. So you, it goes into the, into the flesh, and when it gets pulled out, the, the sucking on the, on the blade is ikwa. It's very graphic, very onomatopoeic. He also, he came up with famously, I mean, anyone who has seen Zulu, anyone who knows anything about Zulus knows about the horns of the buffalo. It's a fighting formation. So he he trained his men, you know, his force, a huge force fighting together as one, carefully choreographed. And what they would do is they they would approach their enemy and they would form up in the horns of the buffalo. So groups would go out left and right, running, running full tilt to encircle the enemy force. And the enemy force wouldn't, wouldn't know what was happening. And, you know, within moments they were surrounded so that they, they now had their foe encircled. And at that point, the head of the buffalo, which is like the main fighting force, pushes forward, you know, like a, like, a, like a bull coming in on the charge. And the head pushes forward, the men with the ikhwa, and they engage the enemy and the, and the outriders who have formed the horns so that the enemy is now fighting on all on all fronts simultaneously. It's called Isimpondo Zancomo, the horns of the buffalo, or the head of the buffalo. And the, the loins are the reserves, so that there's a main fighting force that goes in. And if needed, the loins, who, who stand back, retaining their energy, they're, they're waiting in the wings, so to speak, to, to go in if and when they're, they're required. So all, all, of this is, all of this is created by Shaka. All of this fighting brilliance. And armed with Ikhwa and with the fighting technique of the horns of the buffalo, they become the all-conquering, all-dominant force in their part of the world. And Zululand becomes an independent kingdom, a place in its own right, you know, with, with Shaka in overall dominance. And all the time, in the background, Shaka is taking his advice from Nandi, from, from the Queen, from Queen Nandi and from his aunts, and so he's, he's very much, you know, he, he takes advice from, from men, but he's very much an equal opportunities <laughs> king when it comes to taking advice, and he listens very carefully to the word of his mother. However, he was also, there is no denying it, a psychopath. He was brutally cruel, even by the standards of, of his part of the world and, and, the, and the warrior code. For example, it was well known amongst his warriors that if any fighting man showed any kind of hesitation in battle, if he hung back, didn't commit, then by the time he got back to his home, 
his family would have been beaten to death and the uncommitted soldier would be put to death over his family's dead bodies. This was Shaka's style. He was absolutely and completely intolerant of any kind of hesitancy, any kind of disobedience, any kind of you know not obeying orders. When Nandi died, he went mad, really. He committed the whole kingdom to years of mourning. No option. Uh, no, no babies were to be conceived or born on pain of death. Uh, no milk was to be drunk or used in any foodstuff. He was even disposed to slaughtering calves uh, so that the cows would share his pain at the loss of his mother. And thousands, thousands of his own people were put to death during this period of mourning, purely because, by Shaka's estimation, they, they didn't look sad enough. They didn't seem to be grieving strongly enough for Nandi. So Nandi died in 1827, and in 1828, Shaka was assassinated. Some of his own men gathered around him and put him to death. And it was almost certainly because they just couldn't, they just couldn't cope with him anymore. However, because of what he had done, because of all he had achieved, Zululand was now an established entity. And that, that entity, that independent kingdom, became a thorn in the side of the British Empire. Because towards the end of the 19th century, there was a plan in place to confederate all of the states all of the independent states of Southern Africa to bring them all together in one so that the British Empire could milk it for all the wealth and all the gold and all of the rest of it. Finally, there was only one entity standing in the way of that, which was Zululand. The kingdom of the Zulus would not submit to the loss of its independence and said so. And so the the British government put in place plans to basically force them into war so that they could defeat them, conquer them, and push ahead with their overall plan. So it was it was that attitude of mind that meant that in 1879, a British force crossed into Zululand and provoked a war. And they were brought to battle by the Zulus at a place called Isandalwana. That's a Zulu word that means that hill looks like a little hut, or that hill looks like a little house. And in the shadow of Isandalwana, uh, against all expectations, a force of about 1,500 1,700 British soldiers with the modern weaponry of the day, Martini Henry rifles and a million rounds of ammunition, were caught out by the approach of a Zulu army, uh, 20,000 strong. The chief of the Zulus, a descendant of Shaka, was Ishwayo Kampandi, and he had he had sent his men out and he had said, if you catch the red soldiers, you know, the red tunics, if you catch the red soldiers out in the open, you will gobble him up. Because he, 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 what he meant was, if you, if you get them somewhere where they haven't bothered to, you know, build trenches and, and protections around themselves, if you can just get them in camp where they're just on the move, you'll be able to destroy them. And so on the 22nd of January, 1879, at that is that's what happened. The British soldiers were, were out-tacticked and out-fought. In the aftermath, there was mutual admiration on both sides. The Red soldiers, the British soldiers, who did get away, a handful of them, described the Zulus as the most formidable force of their kind that they ever stood against. And likewise, the Zulu warriors said that they were 
you know they were they were never more impressed by the by the defiant last stand you know made by this uh, outthought outfought british army they stood every man stood in his place and fell like stones is what they said about these red soldiers so it was it was this epic battle it was it was the it was the greatest the most significant defeat ever inflicted upon a british army by an opposition armed only with spears and shields there was never anything like it and the and the battlescape in the shadow of the mountain of Sandalwana is like no place on earth. I've never stood anywhere. You walk into it, honestly, if you if you have some of the backstory of what happened that day, and it's like you've come close to an electric field. You know, the, the hairs on neck and arms just stand up when you're in the shadow of the mountain of Sandalwana. <laughs> All of that destiny was created by Shaka, and Shaka was made by Nandi. There's no two ways about it. Ultimately, the, the Zulus were defeated. The, the British Empire, although they had taken a bloody nose at Isandalwana, they came back. They came back, and there was a final climactic battle, and Zululand was conquered, and the, and the plans for a confederated Southern Africa unfolded. But by then, even, even then, there's something immortal about Zululand, and no one will ever forget the name Zulu. Revolution is afoot, and feelings are running hot in Paris. Food shortages, inflation, rising taxes, and rent increases are stoking the flames. A fight for fairness and equality erupts abolishing feudalism and making all men equal before the law. A moment in history that comes to define the politics of revolution for the wider world. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my neiloliverpatreon.com site. I'd love to see you there. Check out my shop for a fantastic selection of merchandise, t-shirts, mugs, hoodies, the lot. You'll find the details attached. My Instagram account with great daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios, and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves 
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.